This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. part of every human existence is passed in a state which cannot be rendered sensible by the use of wide-awake language, cut-and-dry grammar and go-ahead plot. The words of Irish writer James Joyce, which inspired my guest today, Emer McBride, to write her captivating debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill and you're very welcome to this week's show. What makes for a winning read? Is it the physical impact of the book on the reader? On this week's show, Emer McBride, who recently picked up the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, talks experimental fiction, novenas, and dreaming up the character of girl in A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. You know, I mean, I was obviously very inspired by stream of consciousness technique, but I also thought that it hadn't really, you know, fulfilled all of its potential and that, you know, creating a physical experience for the reader was, was a way of taking that, that tradition and, and making it work a bit harder and, and do something more. You know, I think readers are, you know, adventurous people and they like new experiences and, you know, trying to find a new way for them to experience language and to experience a story was, you know, very interesting to me. This is a show about an Irish writer and an extraordinary first novel, a nameless character and the dark sides of human experience and their unique and memorable effect on the reader. When Booker Prize-winning author Anne Enright was discussing with her husband what she thought of a girl as a half-formed thing, he asked her, so is the author a genius or is she just very good? Anne replied, well, she is definitely a genius, but I don't know how good she is yet. A girl as a half-formed thing tells a gut-wrenching story of a young woman's relationship with her brother who was afflicted by a childhood brain tumour. Their torments and brutality she endures, trying to protect him from his harsh and horrifically judgmental peers and her painful experiences of sexual abuse, exploitation and violence. Words like disturbing, uncompromising, engrossing and original. You know the sort of marketing babble you see at the back of most books, don't even come close to describing this powerful and intoxicating book. A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing takes experimental fiction to a whole new art level. The language is savage, immediate, raw, but so beautiful. And yes, I know I'm losing the run of myself here, but I think what Emer has done is really quite special. So here is a little taster. And be warned, the punctuation is without doubt very different. That long night looms my eyes. Burn, lime it. I'll do. I'll reach out through it. Catch it before it comes. Quick, quick. But it's gone like a rat. Burrow deep and dark where I cannot go. I have nothing against this. No defence at all. But 
to fall on the spindle, to be turned into the darkness, to be turned into stone. The beauty to this book is not just its unique punctuation and grammatical style, but rather its impressive physicality. It's so wonderfully visceral. You smell with her. You feel with her. You scream with her. You sweat for her. And I know this is going to sound completely brain dead and totally crass, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Reading a girl is a half-formed thing. It's similar to the body blows you get in one challenging Roller coaster, super intense, intimate relationship. It's hard, hard work, major hassle, a real struggle, but ultimately so bloody worth it. I think you may know where I'm coming from. Well, let's now meet and hear from the author of A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, Emer McBride. I asked Emer, could we kick off this interview with a reading? Let's take a listen. So... This is quite early on in in the novel and uh, their mother's father, their grandfather, has come to visit them and he's checking up on uh, whether they've been learning their prayers or not. Sit down, youngster, and tell me what have you been at since I was here last. Have you grown? So you won't be stunted, thanks be to God. How's school going? Are you top of your class yet? Ah, you will be soon enough. And how are the tests? And arithmetic? Well, that's not up to much. You can't be trying that hard. Your mother was good at sums. You should ask her to explain. Well, then ask her again. And how's the head? Have you been for any more scans? Well, that's good. And how's your mother doing? No sign of that feckless father, I suppose. I knew the minute I laid eyes on him. No sense of responsibility. I hope you weren't turned out like that. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. And how old are you now? What class are you in? Have you been saying your prayers? Going to communion? How often? And confession? Every week? You know it's important never to receive the host in a state of sin. Your body is a temple for Christ. Did they teach you that at school? So why do you not go more often, or are you just so good? Never tell a lie to your mother. Never fight with your sister. Well, there's no arguing with that. But you know, pride's a deadly sin. We should all be humble before God. Your father was a proud man. He wouldn't come to Mass and look what happened to you as a result. So you beware of pride. Well now, say Hail Mary and we'll forget about it. For the next time you go, tell the priest. Go on, then. Hail Mary. Go on, Hail Mary full of grace. You pick it up. The Lord is. How can you forget? Do you not say the rosary in this house? Then how can you not know the Hail Mary? No, this will not do. This is a terrible carry-on. What about you, Miss Piggy? Come in here and talk to me. You are. You do look like her. Don't you be cheeky. You're the image of her. That snout you have on you. Now see, I've got it. Say please and you can have it back. Don't you hit your grandfather. There, have it so, bold brat. If you were mine, you'd be over my knee. But then my little girls were well-behaved, certainly never slapped their grandfather on his sore leg, because it would make him cry. Now I'll have to tell your mother, and you'll get a beat on your bot, because I'm her daddy. So if I say it, she has to give you a smack. I'm wondering, it's a very theatrical scene, it's a very dramatic scene. How difficult was that to write? Um, I think that scene, I mean, it's quite a long time since I wrote it, so it's it's hard to remember exactly, but I, I think I quite in, enjoyed it, actually. I sort of remember the fearsome old men of my, my youth who, who always felt they had a right to interfere and uh, instruct children who weren't, who weren't even their own uh, on how they should be living their lives. And so there was, for me, you know, as the writer, it was quite a lot of fun to recreate that. So, Emer, for those who haven't read the book, can you give me a quick run through? Uh, well, it's, it's set in Ireland, west of Ireland, in the, in the 
80s and, and early 90s. And it's about the relationship between a, a sister and, and her brother who, who've, who've been abandoned by their father and, and are being raised by their increasingly religious mother. Um, and the brothers had a, a brain tumor in childhood which has left him with some disabilities. And uh, really the story is about their relationship and how she deals with his difficulties. Um, and uh, later on there's a, a theme that enters which is um, about sexual abuse which begins with um, with an older family member when when the girl is thirteen, and those those two things really become the difficulties that she she deals with in in her life and the choices that she makes as a result of of those experiences. And throughout the book, we have very disturbing scenes, but also there are glimpses of humour. So was that important to you? It was, um, but mostly because I think that that is how how life works. I think you know even in the bleakest times that. That people experience in their life, you know, most of us have memories of laughing at really inappropriate times, and through anxiety or nervousness, or you know, just the need for a bit of of relief from from you know from pain. And your key character, she's a very smart girl, and she sees all the hypocrisies, she sees all the unjust things. She's very socially aware, yet very disconnected in another way. Well, I think that. That's often the case for people who who grow up on the outside of the the community that they they're living in, and the girl and and her mother and brother are you know not from the place uh, where they're living, so they don't have a, a strong family network around them. And so you know, being on the outside, I think you you are usually more aware of of how you know things work in that community, and and you have a clear review of it. And you present a very vivid picture of bullying, of torment. Anyone reading it is reminded of school and how tough school can be and how thick-skinned you have to be to navigate all the highs and lows, especially if you're a little bit different or there's something different about your family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and certainly it was something I was very aware of, you know, growing up, you know, in, in sort of rural Ireland in, in the 80s and, and the fact that my family were not from the West but from the North, you know, you know there was a lot of casual casual cruelty because people were uncomfortable with with anyone who came from outside of their you know their realm of experience and and I think you know a lot of a lot of people who who moved in Ireland at that time would have experienced a, a similar thing the novel is set in the 1980s late 80s is it or when exactly have you set it well you know I, I mean I don't state it but I would say generally the late 80s early 90s and I can remember growing up in the 80s in Dublin and then moving to Cork and feeling a bit of an outsider. And as I was reading the book, it reminded me how much Ireland has maybe changed in some ways. How we're used to people from different places, we're more used to diversity, used to change in our lives. Whether it's in the community you have, any difference at all is, you know, shock horror. It's, it's amplified in so many different ways and ultimately attacked. Uh, yes, and I think, you know, as I said, that was, you know, that was very much part of, of Irish life at that time. And I do think that it, that's something that has changed hugely and, and to the benefit of the country, um, you know, in the boom years. And, and even since there was, you know, a lot of inward migration and that, you know, happily sort of broke up this very homogenous white Catholic conservative, you know, sort of native base. And and I think, you know, the country is, is certainly all the better for, for having that influx of of culture, a foreign culture and, um, you know, different experiences, just mixing the country up and helping the country to grow and to open up and, and to understand itself better, actually.
And your language in terms of how you bring across the rosaries and the prayers and everything, it it takes you to a completely different place. All the Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Was it important to you to show how religion could be exploited in some way? Well, I think the, I mean... Certainly, the you know the things I have to say about the the church and the, and the people who are of religious persuasions in the in the book, you know, I'm I'm very critical of of their positions. But the actual use of prayers was for a linguistic purpose, and and I suppose it was also about religion. And because so much of the style is very uh, choppy and broken up, I felt that inserting prayers at certain moments was a way of of calming it down, actually, and and bringing the reader back to a, a sort of a calm place whenever a sort of a familiar or traditional prayer was used and laid out, you know, grammatically and and the way that it, you know, it's it's normally seen. Um, and and part of that was to say that that was also a use of, of religion, was that it was something that was, uh, you know, there as a comfort, actually, as a, supposed to be there as a, a rock in a stormy sea. And it's interesting when you say that you used it as a device to calm the reader down. I loved the book. It's ferociously energetic, but it sliced through me, Emer. It's just so immediate. It works through your entire body and through your head in terms of it's almost an assault and a creative assault on you in one way. How conscious were you of the impact of the language on the reader? Um, well, it was, you know, it was difficult for me to know what the impact would be, but what I was trying to achieve definitely was was an unmediated experience for the reader that I, I wanted the writer, the presence of the of the author to be negligible, actually, to not for the reader not to feel as though they are being told a story, but that they are actually physically experiencing the story within themselves. And so, you know, that's what a lot of the the, the purpose of the style was to do, was really to just lift that that barrier between the the character and the reader. And you really do it because I've reread certain parts of the book several times and there's there's no separation really. It's very unique, Emer. Thank you. Well, um, it was, you know, that was certainly what I I wanted to do and I felt, you know, I mean, I was obviously very inspired by uh, stream of consciousness technique, but I also thought that it hadn't really, you know, fulfilled all of its potential and... And that, you know, creating a physical experience for the reader was, was a way of taking that um, that tradition and, and making it work a bit harder and, and do something more. You know, I think readers are, you know, adventurous people and they like new experiences and, you know, trying to find a new way for them to experience language and to experience a story was, you know, very interesting to me. And you certainly smell with her, you bleed with her, you feel her pain and it's interesting that when you read some of the passages, if you just read them out loud, they become very, very different. So I'm wondering, as you were writing the book, did you consciously read out parts? It's very hard to sit still and read a girl as a half form thing. It's a very energetic read, so it lends itself to being read out. When you know, when I was writing, I read it aloud a lot to myself, and uh, in the rewriting process, I you know I read and reread each line. I don't know how many times to make sure that it sounded sounded right. Um, but, I, you know, obviously at the time it was hard for me to know what kind of impact that would have on a reader. And, you know, being the writer is, is kind of cheating because you already know what you want to happen. So you can't really tell whether it is going to have that effect or not. But I'm, I'm glad that, that people think that it, it, it does um, offer them something else. It certainly does, because you almost feel possessed as you're reading it. I'm wondering, what was it like bringing up very tricky themes that have affected a broad section of Irish society? Themes of abuse, themes of sexual violence. Because to get that tone, 
yet to communicate the terror and intimidation must have been very difficult. It was hard and it was, you know, when I sat down to write the book, I didn't have a story in mind and the story just grew as I wrote it and I really didn't want to explore any of those themes um, when I set out and I was sort of annoyed with myself when I realised that I would be looking at themes like that because I, I wanted to try and write something that wasn't a part of that tradition of, of Irish literature that explores um, those themes. But, you know, in the end I understood that those those themes are are a huge part of, of Irish life. They are, you know, they are in the background of all of you know, 20th century Ireland's life. And, and that's why these stories keep, keep being written. And that's why writers keep having to tell them because, you know, we, we're not done and we're not, we're not free of that past yet. And until we are, those things have to be returned to. And it's not difficult. It's not uh, pleasant and it is difficult. And it's not necessarily something that the writer you, you set out you know, wanting to, to add to, but it is an important part of, of life that needs to be explored. And Emer, I suppose you can't tiptoe over the harshness, the brutality of those experiences. No, and I, and I think to do so is really to dishonour the things that happen to people and, and the terrible things that people live through. And, you know, in order for society as, as a whole to, to, to move forward and to begin to understand and to, to make some peace with that, past, that terrible past and all the many terrible things that happened in it, you know, there has to be a confrontation of, of what went on and a, a true understanding of the effect of those kind of behaviours on, on people's lives. It's only when that happens that there can be any kind of healing process, I think. And Emer, have women come up to you on the street if they recognise you or have you had letters or emails from women who've experienced sexual violence? Um, I have had a, no- a number of, of people who've, who've emailed me or who've approached me after readings and 